Welcome to the DTB podcast. My name is Ike Hanacho. I'm editor of DTB, and I'm going to be talking to Dr. Martin Dearden, a member of the DTB editorial board and a GP with a lot of public health experience. Welcome, Martin. Thank you. Martin, I know you feel very strongly about NICE's policy in relation to end-of-life drugs. Perhaps we could start by saying um, what your understanding of the previous policy was and, and, and its its uh, strengths and, and perhaps its weaknesses. Well, the, the previous policy was that NICE would assess all treatments for its health technology appraisals on the basis of whether they met a particular quality threshold. Now, the quality threshold was somewhat arbitrary and people weren't entirely clear what it was, but it was something in the region of £20,000 per quali. For those people not familiar with the, the term quali, just to say brave, basically what that means. A, a quali is a quality-adjusted life year, and it's an a, assessment of um, how cost-effective a treatment is, and it takes into account a utility based on what the quality of life of a benefit might be within a clinical study. Okay. Their threshold is somewhere between twenty and 30,000, and if, if it's less than £20,000 per quali using health economic analysis, cost-utility analysis then um, NICE would almost certainly approve that treatment. If it's more than 30,000, then it would be highly unlikely that NICE would approve that treatment, and unless there was some kind of overriding reason why you might go beyond that threshold. And broadly speaking, were you, are you, were you supportive of that policy as it stood? I think I was supportive, although I think there are um, difficulties with that threshold because it was eff effectively set 10 years ago and you do wonder whether things should have moved on. And it's entirely and arbitrary. I mean, there's nothing magic, presumably, about 20,000 or 30,000. No, the, the, no, it is entirely arbitrary and it's one of the, uh, the difficulties in terms of understanding this area because effectively uh, by um, not defining a threshold and then making decisions, nice arrived at their own threshold. Mm. Um, they, they were very reluctant to state what it might be. Um, but over time it became apparent that that was roundabout the limit of what they considered to be cost-effective. Okay, so, so that was a position as of December 2008. What were the weaknesses of that? I mean, presumably there were weaknesses, otherwise it wouldn't have changed. Well, there may have been weaknesses. I mean, the difficulty is you want to try and apply the same type of reasoning to every single um, technology or, or drug intervention that you look at. If, if you don't do that, then it becomes fair on, unfair on the others, that you might be um, somehow weighting one more than another. Um, so, is that so, true? What about where you've got very small groups of patients who you have to make exceptions for? Is it, is it, can well, that be a case? We, we do get into a very technical area when it comes to that level. I mean, NICE do not make decisions on what are called ultra-orphan um, drug status, which is where the, the drug is um, only going to be used in a very small number of patients. And they say that that's made by a different body, which is the Specialist um, Technology Commissioning Group. Um, and I think that's, that's probably a reasonable thing, because they say that for very, very small patient numbers, it's very difficult to develop a drug which is not highly expensive. Mm. Now, I also work for a um, group in, in Wales where, which does look at ultra-orphan drugs, and we have special dispensation to allow for those particular treatments where, where the intervention is very rare um, but you but, but the, the inequity in effect is if you decide that you're going to 
choose a group of patients who, for whom you believe more money should be spent in order to, to buy a number of qualies or, or, or utilities, then um, it, it does seem to be unfair. And that's your argument about the new policy, that it's shifted in that direction? It has shifted the balance, and there may be reasons for that. I think the reasons being is that the people have argued the quality is not a very good assessment of um, uh, how people value the end of their life. So the, the policy that NICE has introduced is called the end-of-life policy, effectively. And what it's saying is if patients only have a short time to live, you should value the potential gains that you can give them by giving them a treatment more so that for the one or two months or maybe three months, which is the suggestion that they use, that, that, that it might be worthwhile giving them um, more so that you pay more for that and intervention. And you object to that, that notion? I, I do in that it, it can deprive patients who may well benefit from those types of treatments equally not receiving them. It couldn't, well, when I say those types of treatments, I mean um, treatments that could be used as alternatives or in the same kind of context. And, and by that I mean that I'm aware, that, and I, I believe quite strongly, that we do not value palliative care services as well as we should. And that mm -hmm. might be a better use of that type of resource. But as far as I understand it, NICE's argument is that it's, it's putting in place very strict criteria about people who might um, be the beneficiaries from this new policy. Um, there are strict rules in terms of how long the person could be expected to live, how the treatment compares to other available treatments for their condition and so on. It, 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 it seems on the surface, uh, or, or proponents would say on the surface, that this is a very tight policy which is looking at a very specific situation um, rather than, as you, you're seeming to suggest, that, that we've moved away from a from a very robust sensible policy which ensures equity well the the criteria that nice provide is that the patient would not be expected to live for more than 24 months that their the additional life expectancy is reasonably greater than three months mm. um, and that this is a step change or an innovative treatment that buys something additional to treatments that were previously available. Uh -huh. Now, my concern is that that sounds very good at face value and that if you could use robust systems to help identify those cases, there may be an argument. There, there may be an argument. But, but, but what I'm failing to understand, what are, you, what are you saying about the, what are the weaknesses which don't allow those criteria to apply? Because when drug studies are done in those groups of patients, it is very difficult and... Or, or maybe the drug companies have, have um, found it difficult or, or, or expensive to develop the kind of measures that you need to make those assessments to, to determine what the life gain is, what the advantage is. But presumably if, if there isn't good evidence that suggests that the patient fulfills the criteria, the treatment won't be allowed by NICE. I, I, I wish I was convinced that that was the case. Right. Um, and so my concern is that the decisions that appear to being that appear to be made at present um, are, are based on big assumptions about benefit. Um, for example, assumptions based on um, time to progression um, or, or uh, signs that the patient has has uh, shown progression of their particular cancer. 
time to progression is not always a best marker of or, or surrogate indicator of buying additional months for those individuals. Now the other difficulty is in most of these studies when I've looked at them you're looking at um, where a patient has shown some benefit they effectively get taken out of the study and they cross over to the active intervention and it means that these studies are very diluted and very difficult to analyze so that determining whether there has been a robust benefit is, is quite tricky and I, I think you really the, the types of assumptions that you need to make in order to be clear that that patient has benefited in the way that NICE have described are just too, um, too big that they're that, that we can't be guaranteed that we're, we're giving that benefit. My, my view is that we need better research, we need better randomised control studies in these patients. But I started off by saying that you had you know, public health experience, which you do, and people listening to this will, 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 will hear somebody who, who's obviously very knowledgeable about that kind of area, but they may also hear somebody who's just taking a, an, an ultra-evidence-based uh, position which has nothing to do with the real world of people dying from terrible diseases. How would you react to that? I, I, there may be a, there may be some truth in that, and you might believe that I'm too much of a purist and that I'm I'm driven too much by evidence-based medicine. But if we are going to dedicate a significant proportion of our NHS monies to these treatments, I think we need more robust information. I have a particular concern because by adopting the um, end-of-life criteria which NICE have adopted, they're effectively sanctioning payment for very, very high-cost treatments. And you can argue that one way to overcome this would be to encourage the drug companies to reduce their costs. So by allowing this, by sanctioning it, we're not providing incentives within the market to uh, at least look at um, reducing costs to the NHS. Now, if we don't if we pay for those treatments, and, and it costs us a lot of money, um, then the knock-on effect is what's called the opportunity cost. What, what are the things we're paying for um, at present that we won't be able to afford to pay for in the future? And also the distortion in priorities which I've mentioned. Clearly that has a, a seductive field about it, that line of argument. What about, though, the... the criticism that you're ignoring one of the criteria in NICE's, um, one of NICE's new criteria, which is that this applies to, to small populations of patients, and therefore the overall cost really is not going to be a significant issue. I, I, I would like to be convinced that that was the case, and I'm not so far. I mean, Why not? I mean, because NICE have stated that it would only apply to a very small proportion of evaluations that they do in a year. And already it is obvious that it is being used in, in the context of technology appraisals in a larger proportion of treatments than we would have anticipated. And Can you give some, some notion of what, what you're talking about in terms of amount or numbers of treatments or whatever? Well, I, I'm aware that they have applied those criteria in, in the region of about six appraisals so far or in the process of applying those criteria. And the original... Um, suggestion when this policy was agreed, which came through very rapidly with, with minimal consultation uh, involving the NHS, the original suggestion was it would involve maybe two or three technologies in a year. Okay. So, I mean, we are where we are now. You're not denying, for instance, that this policy will benefit a lot of patients and families, surely? 
Um, I think the benefits may be overstated and that I do really have a concern that, that one of the problems, one of the reasons why we've got ourselves into what I consider a bit of a pickle is that we have believed that these drugs are truly life-saving, that we really do, that they're being um, put across in the media as drugs that can have a miraculous effect in terms of um, preserving people's lives. And actually when you look at the reality is we're looking at drugs which have a very small impact at the end of life. They may keep people alive for a few months. But isn't that, I mean, that's a huge thing for somebody who's gonna, it, it, got a very short life expectancy. It, it, a few months. It's, it, it's a, I mean, you're dismissing it like it's nothing. Well, I think if, if patients were fully aware of the advantages and disadvantages, I, I, I would that then that those decisions may be a bit um, more rational but I think in many instances because of the way that the media and others have portrayed these treatments they do not get that balance in terms of understanding what the advantages of that treatment might be. When you say balance I mean if you're going to die you're going to die and if somebody says to you, you taking this treatment will extend your life by up to three months four months five months where, where what, what balance is there that says well actually I don't want it? It, you, basically what you've just suggested there is the concept of hope. Now if there was good robust evidence that that life extension was available then I might be a little bit more kind of relaxed in terms of uh, understanding how patients would respond to that approach but I don't think we've got that information and I think it is we're actually effectively being um, disingenuous in terms of making that suggestion. Now people want to believe that these drugs have miraculous effects. It, it, was, it suits people to have that belief and I'm, I'm not persuaded by the information that I've seen so far for most of those drugs that that is the case. Every now and again you come across a drug where there is a distinct advantage and I think that's a very different matter. But for many of these treatments I do, do not think it is that clear-cut and to persuade patients that they may have a drug which is life-saving is, is not a, a good way to handle this particular problem. What, what are you particularly worried about in, in the way these drugs are discussed and promoted and, and talked about? Well, one of the things that the, there was a review of this, uh, these, these elements by Mike Richards at the end of last year, and one of the things that he pointed out is that, that possibly clinicians are not very good at communicating um, what the choices are at the end of life. Um, and, and advising people that you know, they are um, effectively dying and uh, discussing the choices that might be available. And it was also something that was picked up by the, um, the confidential inquiry into to deaths after uh, chemotherapy, which looked at the deaths that occurred within 30 days of receiving chemotherapy. And what that demonstrated is that a lot of patients appeared to be receiving chemotherapy inappropriately. They, they thought that maybe as many as 20% of patients had received chemotherapy inappropriately because they were too debilitated really to benefit from that intervention. And then that, that then begs the question is if that happens surely the clinicians themselves should find better ways and maybe there's a training need and a developmental need to encourage clinicians to have more open discussions about the reality of treatment at that time. So and what about one of your other concerns, which is that there is a direct link between what we pay for these drugs and what we have available for other services? Yeah, I, I think that that's a real problem, and I, I know that it's been articulated by other commissioning bodies, PCTs, local health boards, 
in, in, in England and Wales. So this isn't just a, a notional idea of, you know, oh, well, if we, if, if we spend money on these drugs, there might be opportunity costs elsewhere. You're talking about real demonstrations of where spending on these drugs prevents spending on on particular things it, it prevents development of services it's if, if you're working in a cash-strapped environment it's very difficult to set up what you think might be a better service or a better way of managing and and i've used the example of palliative care because for example we recently made a decision to fund some drugs based on this is your local pct this is our local pct mm. local health board based on uh, the nice um, appraisal which had used the end-of-life criteria and we became very aware that we'd already eaten up our, our growth monies for drugs. Now if we don't have growth monies then it's very difficult to look at things like, and the, 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 the real example for me is palliative care services. There's a, there's a big um, drive to improve and enhance end-of-life care services um, so that the patients that are being seen in clinics may not realise that one of the choices that they lose as a result of this is that they may, in, in effect, not be able to be treated at home because the services aren't there. When, when they need palliative care, they have to be admitted to hospital, which is probably the wrong place. And that just seems perverse to me. What about one of the things you said earlier was that, that um, we're not, by this new policy, nice by this new policy, is not essentially forcing drug companies to produce the kind of evidence which would convince you and probably others that their drugs are worthwhile. What about the counter-argument that says that if things were left as you would like them to be, say at a, a, a threshold of 30,000 per quality, regardless of the, uh, the condition for which the drug is, is, is aimed at, that that would be a disincentive for, for drug companies to, to develop and launch their products in the UK? I, th I think there may be an element of truth there and, and uh, that again creates a dilemma. You have to believe and have to understand that what we're looking at is the global economy as well. Now the way that NICE has developed and has worked in the last 10 years has been looked at with great interest by many other countries. They see it as a way to help them deal with um, a healthcare costs which are running out of control um, and therefore the, the types of decisions that NICE make um, have an impact on the cost of drugs, not just in the UK, but in other countries as well. And I think we need to be sure that the systems we have in place um, help to, to uh, keep costs contained in a way which is appropriate. And I'm, I'm not sure that we've got that as yet. Okay, so let's, let's take two, two, let me ask you two questions. One is, if you had your way, what would the system look like that appraises these particular drugs and decides whether they should be available in the NHS? If I had my way, I think at this point in time, we have accepted the, the way that NICE works in terms of its technology appraisals. I think we should use the same thresholds for making these types of decisions. We should insist on better quality data better information about quality of life with these drugs which are used in the context of um, people that have not got long to live. No exceptions? Um, I can't see many exceptions, I'm afraid. I think the only way to do this fairly is to insist on that type of um, approach to this. I also think that we there should be a better acknowledgement by the media, politicians and others 
that the cost of these drugs can be really extreme and that if we um, and I work for a local health board which is equivalent of a PC2 I do work for them and help make decisions on the use of these drugs if if we are making decisions that have a very large financial consequence it means that there is not money to do other things and I, I, I really think that that has to be uh, made explicit okay so that's the the Martin did and prescription of how the world should look what do we do with NICE's policy as it stands as of 28th of May um, I think there should be a careful evaluation of that policy. I wonder whether there should be further consultation within the NHS about the implications of adopting that policy. But it's not going to go back, Martin, is it? In the real I think it's unlikely, but I think that we need to be to make people aware of this. I also think that we need to make, make them aware of what, though. I mean, that the position now, in 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 reality, is that these drugs are going to be available. I I think there should be greater awareness of of the uncertainties and the assumptions that have been made in terms of making those drugs available. I still think there are battles to be won with other um, drugs where, where they feel that they, have been, uh, they haven't quite met the thresholds, even using end-of-life criteria. I, th I think there should be much more pressure on the drug industry to um, reduce their costs and to, to come up with more realistic patient access schemes because the ones I've seen have been too weak, really, to have any big impact on, on the overall cost to the NHS. And I think we need a, a, an open debate about things like providing palliative care services which and, and end-of-life care, which <clears throat> have been almost pushed to one side in the rush to believe that you can give people drugs which have a miraculous impact and, and provide extension to life in the absence of really good evidence. Martin, thanks very much.